Welcome to Harbour. We are a progressive Christian faith community based in Carrickfergus, Northern Ireland. You can also find us at harbourfaith.com. There are ancient maps that you've probably seen or heard of, and they, they look a bit like this. This is one of Scandinavia, about 1500s, and you're familiar with how, how they look. They're often decorated around the edges with what look like serpents or monsters, and you see them in the corners of maps like this. But there's one uh, map called the Hunt Lennox Globe. It's the oldest, one of the oldest maps we have, a little bit older than this one. And it actually has, besides these monsters, an, an inscription. The inscription in Latin reads, Hic sunt draconis, here be dragons. And it's kind of a shorthand, it's code for saying, this is the bit we know in the center here, but out there is danger. Be careful. Here be dragons. Sometimes when you talk about or want to learn again fresh ideas that other people consider sacrosanct and you can't challenge that, you need to be warned, there be dragons. Just by, just by um, announcing we're having a conversation about the gospel this week, someone sent me a message saying, uh, you keep denying the truth of the word of God, the very thing that tells us very clearly what Christianity is, right? So as soon as you actually say we want to talk about this, some people will become very defensive. And they mean well because they've had this thing that's been precious to them their whole Christian journey. And all of a sudden they might feel like, oh, it's been questioned. And they can panic and want to be defensive about it. So what am I talking about here? When you talk about the gospel, or ask the question, what is the gospel? Most people assume it goes something like this. Whether they believe it or not, they assume they know what it is, at least in Western evangelical circles. Basically, there's a loving God who wants to be with you, but there's a real problem. He can't be with you because you're sinful. However, Jesus has died for you so that God can now forgive you. What you have to do is decide to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and accept him as the Son of God, and then you can benefit from this. Right? So that's more or less my summary of, of what you've probably all heard, many of us have heard, is the gospel. It's written in a, a few places, Campus Crusade for Christ. Anyone heard of them? Campus Crusade for Christ? Okay, I'll tell you about them in a minute. They call it the four spiritual laws. Number one, God loves you and offers a plan for your life. Number two, all of us sin, and our sin has separated us from God. Number three, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for our sin. Number four, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our lives. See the pattern? John Piper, a well-known evangelical in North America, has his own summary. Uh, it's more succinct. Instead of starting with God loves you, he starts with this. Point one, God is holy. Point two, we are hopeless sinners. Point three, Christ died for hopeless sinners. Point four, salvation is enjoyed by those with faith in Christ. Uh, more recently, there's a well-known, in some parts, what's called the four-point gospel tract. And it's probably the most brief summary you'll find of these four points. And it says simply, number one, God loves me. Number two, I've sinned. Number three, Jesus died for me. Number four, I must choose Christ. There, 
that's an abbreviation of Campus Crusade's original four things. Anyone here involved in Kids Club a while ago, a number of years ago, you remember those things as the four things. Very common, everybody was using it. Those four things that are said, uh, there are a smattering of verses that are picked out from the Bible to support that rhythm. God loves me, but the problem is I've sinned, but the good news Jesus died for me, and number four is what I have to do. I'm going to go more into what those verses actually say. So those are all John Piper's ones. On Thursday, we can delve a bit deeper. But for now, I just want to ask you a question. As you look at the verses that support what is assumed to be the absolute default explanation of the gospel, those verses, what do you notice? Or what, what jumps out at you as perhaps surprising? Considering this is supporting supposedly the actual gospel. Anything? None of them are the gospel. Yeah? None of them come from the gospels. Isn't that odd? There are some scriptures you can pick out from the gospels, particularly Gospel of John, to support some of the points. It's not to say they're not there, but most commonly these are the ones that are used. What else? Anything else? Yes. Did everyone hear that? They're isolated verses picked from different letters, different authors, talking about different things. I always think it's like taking a line from one recipe book and a line from another recipe book and saying, this is how you make a casserole. When the one recipe book was, a, was, a, was about making angel delight and the other one was a recipe for Spanish paella. It's not fair to the text to do that. And the reason this has to be done is because no one in the Bible makes the argument with those four points in that order like that in one go. No one does it. So you have to pick individual verses and cobble it together. It's the only way you can make that argument because no one, let alone Jesus, says ever, guys, this is a summary of the gospel. God loves you and wants to be close with you. However, he can't because you're really sinful. But the good news is God's going to punish Jesus instead of you. And therefore, you can believe in Jesus. And uh, then you get to go to heaven. It's not made in a consistent way or else it would be used. But you can put it together from different verses. The question you might want to ask yourself is, given this is the bedrock, the assumed gospel, I call it, ought it not to be a little bit more upfront and obvious, at least on the lips of Jesus. Now what we have to consider then, because you might be wondering is, hold on a second, just because we can't find it all in one go in anyone's actual writings, doesn't mean it's not true, the four things and the way the gospel is. It might still be. And you might be thinking, well, if I've heard this growing up and my friends have all heard it growing up and it's so common and it's everywhere, surely it must be right. It can't be that we've suddenly figured out it's not quite right. But I want you to consider what I call the crew factor. Crew is now the name for Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, it was begun by a guy, Bill Bright, Campus Crusade for Christ, and it was a way of reaching young people, students uh, on campuses. As you can see, it had 25,000 missionaries in 199 countries about uh, just less than 10 years ago. Now, what's interesting is in 1959, I want you to pay attention to this, Bill Bright developed the four spiritual laws because he was trying to 
summarize or condense what Campus Crusade was teaching into a manageable format. In consultation with the salesman Bob Ringer, after he and his team encountered difficulty disseminating the gospel message. In that last paragraph, one word should jump out at you and scare you. Anyone see it? Salesman. And I don't mean to be facetious, but I'm serious. When you see salesman colluding with the gospel and how can we pitch this and sell it as a product, you should be worried because it works. Five years later, by the way, I'm not making this up. You can go, this is public knowledge. You can go and look it up, Wikipedia, Campus Crusades on websites. Five years later, this, another businessman, Gus Yeager, took the initiative to compile the four spiritual laws into a booklet, which was accompanied by supporting Bible verses, the ones I gave you, uh, some commentary and support diagrams, the most famous diagram of which is of the two cliffs, the gap in the middle, and the cross that spans. By 2006, the book that had been translated into over 200 languages and more than 2.5 billion copies had been distributed worldwide, one of the most widely distributed religious booklets in history. Also around this time, Billy Graham uh, was gaining momentum, and he had his own version of this. Um, he calls it the four steps to peace with God or something, but they're exactly the same. So you've got a perfect storm here. The growth of consumerist advertising, the summary of the gospel into these four points with salespeople behind it. You've got televangelism taking off all in this, all and around this time and reaching millions and millions of people. Now, the 60s gave us some good things. For example, John Glass. <laughs> Where are you, John? <laughs> but they also, Mike will show, show you, gave us some less good things, such as this. You know, if you were to follow a busy doctor as he makes his daily round of calls, you'd find yourself having a mighty busy time keeping up with him. Time out for many men of medicine usually means just long enough to enjoy a cigarette. And because they know what a pleasure it is to smoke a mild, good-tasting cigarette, they're particular about the brand they choose. In a repeated national survey, doctors in all branches of medicine Doctors in all parts of the country were asked, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? Once again, the brand named most was Camel. Yes, according to this repeated nationwide survey, more doctors smoke Camels than any other cigarette. Why not change to Camels for the next 30 days and see what a difference it makes in your smoking enjoyment? Okay, don't see do how that. Camels agree with your throat. See how mild and good tasting a cigarette can be. <laughs> this, is not, this is not a spoof, right? This is a real advert from the 60s. Any doctors in the house? David, what, uh, out of curiosity, what's, which brand would you recommend uh, for the soothing of one's throat? You, switch to e-cigarettes, thank you, yeah. Ah, well, that was the 60s, it was acceptable, and yeah, I get it. But just because something has mass appeal, and is presented in, and marketed doesn't mean it's right. What we've heard, those four truths, the four spiritual laws, can you sense the gravity, gravity of, of what Campus Crusade, Bill Bright called them, laws, are only 60 years old? Doesn't that surprise you? In our own generation. And now we've just copied and pasted and copied and pasted. 
I call it the Mac Gospel. That's not to say there's anything wrong with McDonald's, but it's not really nutritious either. Yes, it works. It's easy to mass appeal for points, especially if you can say, well, there's a couple of verses that support them. And unfortunately, over the years, lots of other organizations have said, hey, these Campus Crusade guys, where it all started 60 years ago, have already summarized it for us, let's just copy and paste it. And so it got everywhere. YWAM, right, you'll find it. You'll find it in most missionary organizations. So whether you know it or not, you've been influenced. We've all been influenced. I remember them from South Africa, Campus Crusade. They were in lots of schools and universities. So, so what? Why am I pointing this out? Well, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that summary of the gospel that's kind of said as a default and often the start of many sermons is insufficient, I think, and I want to show you why. By the way, if you don't think that it's made its way into sermons still today, um, have a look at this next clip. This is the gospel broken down in four points, and this is the bare bones truth that the Bible time and time again teaches us. And this should be something that's so familiar to us because everything that we do in our identity as Christians is this. Quick recap. Point number one, it says that God loves me. He created me for a relationship with him, like the rope when it was seamless and it was one and it was unbroken. God loves me, and so we had that relationship. Point number two, I have sinned and it broke the relationship. Cut it in half, separated us from God. Point number three, Jesus died for me. His forgiveness on the, his, his sacrifice on the cross offers forgiveness for our sins, and that's an amazing truth. Point number four, I have to decide anybody who comes to God and says, I repent of my sins, please forgive me. Jesus looks at them and he says, I'll erase it all and fix our relationship so that it can be restored as it was before, seamless and unbroken. It's an amazing truth, and we should be familiar with that as Christians because it is the basis for everything that we do. It's the basis for everything we do. It's not just an idea. It's the default. So can you hear the sales pitch in it? It's a classic technique. It's called bait and switch. And what you do is you bait people's interest with something good, like God's love, or don't you love going on holiday, right? Anything. But there's a problem. You go on holiday and your kids are in and out of the pool, their sun cream washes off and they get sunburned. But we've got a solution, this special waterproof sun cream. What you have to do is subscribe $5.99 a month to get our special package. So you see there's, a, there's always this four-step rhythm. You create desire, you bait, you then switch in a problem. God loves you, but here's a problem. You're separate from God. Then you offer a solution your product or your thing that you're pushing, and you tell them what you want them to do to get it. Give us money, sign up to this program, whatever. So it's now the standard uh, four-point bait-and-switch technique. The thing is, for Jesus, the gospel is not a sales pitch. It's an announcement. And that's slightly more dull. And it doesn't lend itself to being put into a little tract the gospel is an announcement. It begins this way with Christ coming on the scene and announcing something, which is what? What does he announce in, in the start of all the gospels? The kingdom of God is what? Near. Christ became flesh and dwelt where? Among us. 
Emmanuel means God with us. Where's the separation? Right? Christ with you. The kingdom of God is not here or there or elsewhere. It is where? Within you. In Jesus' day, there was an assumption that God favored holy people over less holy people, okay, amongst Jewish people. And that was reflected in their actual form of worship. Where did ancient people believe, the ancient Israelites believe that God physically dwelt? In the temple. Specifically? The holy of holies in the temple. So an inner point of an inner point. And there are only fewer and fewer people who are allowed to get closer and closer to God. So if you were the high priest, you could be right up there. If you were a lesser priest, a bit back. If you were a Jewish male, you could be in the certain inner courts. If you were a Gentile, whatever. And then the further back you go, you've got women, you've got unclean women, you've got lepers, you've got sinners, tax collectors, and so on. And that's the way it was. Everybody physically was placed within a distance from God, depending on how holy they were. And Jesus, who comes on the scene, not with a sales pitch, right? Not with a sales pitch, but with an announcement, says the kingdom of God is not in that little holy box. It's where? In these guys. And who does Jesus go straight to? Directly to? And whom is he criticized for spending most of his time with? Exactly. Those where? On the margins. He deliberately makes a point of saying this gap that you think separates these guys from the very special people doesn't exist. And God in the flesh is going to demonstrate it. And he goes there to the great criticism of who? The holy ones who were, wait a minute, we're the ones with close proximity to God. You're being a heretic. That's blasphemy. This is what got Jesus killed. He was announcing something contrary to what was already accepted as the norm in his time and place. You've got this wrong, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is not this little thing to be enjoyed by certain people who are holy enough and who've dealt with their sin well enough. It's universal. And I'm going to make this absolutely clear. And so he doesn't summarize it in four points. He spends three years living, eating, and breathing with those in the margins to announce the first part, actually. God loves you. This separation thing of yours, it's toxic. And yet we still insist on it in point number two. We're separate. Do you see that? God loves you, but we're separate. We're saying almost the opposite of what Jesus says. Now, I'm running over this quite briefly. I want to deal with the two problems. The one problem is the separation. Number two is that the forgiveness of sins. And we'll go into more detail on Thursday for those who, who, want to, who want to join in. Thinking again about separation. If there is separation from God, when Jesus tells stories, parables, about separation from God, where someone in the story ends up separated from God, when Jesus tells it, what is always the reason for the separation? So the parables I'm talking about, and there aren't any others where someone is separated from God that tells something different, okay? The rich man and Lazarus, the rich man ends up separated from God because he ignores and doesn't have compassion on the poor man. 
right? That's the only reason given. The unforgiving servant parable ends up with someone separated from God because they didn't do what? Forgive. They were forgiven for no reason apart from love and grace. They were included, but they didn't include the person who owed them something. So they ended up separate in that parable. The sheep and the goats. Those who ended up, if you know the parable, separate from God, ended up separate from God because they didn't do what? Show compassion for the poor. Visit those in prison. That's what it says. The workers in the vineyard end up separated from God at the end of the story because they abuse the workers in the, in the field and are unkind. So lack of compassion is the thread that runs through. And so Jesus is saying this idea of separation, that some people are separate from God, uh, is not right. And I'm going to show how, how, how not right it is. But if you do want to manage to separate yourself from God, this is how you'll do it. By ignoring the poor, by being unkind, by lacking in compassion. And Jesus demonstrates this all the way to the cross. Whereupon on the cross, he still doesn't separate himself from people which he could have done saying so himself. Could I not call down legions of angels to protect myself from this? No. He says what? Father, forgive them. And why? Why should God forgive them? Not because the price has been paid. That comes later. But what does Jesus say? They don't realize what they're doing. So even all the way to the cross, suffering and death, Jesus is saying this separation, it's not there. You're imagining it. And I'm going to go to the cross to prove it. And we're called to do likewise. Forgiveness of sins. How does Jesus say you can get forgiveness? On what does a person's forgiveness depend if Jesus is asked? Honestly. Anybody? Exactly. Did anyone hear what Sarah said there? If you forgive others. We don't get Jesus saying... If you come to me and you're really sorry enough, then I'm going to forgive your sins. He actually says in Matthew 6:14, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So that's gospel because it's in the gospel. It's from the words of Jesus. So if you ask if someone asks, I, I really feel like I'm not forgiven by God, what should I do? The actual answer should be, well, Practice a life of forgiveness, and then you will participate in the forgiveness of, of Christ. Because that's what Jesus actually says. Now, you can read other mechanisms for forgiveness into later writings from Paul and so on, but you need to ask yourself, who do I follow, Paul or Jesus? Paul himself, in his own letters, writes. Some of you guys are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow whoever. What are you doing? Are we not mere men? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Did Paul go to the cross for you? That's what Paul says. Are you not behaving like mere humans when you do this? Paul is saying, I'm not Christ. And yet so often we take Paul's words as superior and to, to even Christ's. And we need to be careful about that. The other times that you find forgiveness happening in the Gospels, in the parables... For example, the poor the man who's lame, who's brought down through the roof, whose friends bring him to Jesus. They bring him to Jesus because they want him to heal his legs. But what does Jesus do first? Forgives his sins. Why? Honestly, why did Jesus forgive that man's sins? 
You don't have to shout out loud, but I really, really want you to think about that question. Why did Jesus forgive that person's sins? Or in the parable of the unforgiving servant, when the master forgave the sins of the person who owed him. Or in any other case where Jesus says your sins are forgiven. Why does Jesus forgive sins? Just because he wants to. He just wants to do it. It's just pure, lavish grace. It's not because the guy went through the four-step program. Right? It's not because there was a big explanation. And wouldn't you have thought Jesus would have said at least once, guys, this is how it works. I would really love to be able to forgive you. Sadly, I can't because someone's really got to pay the price of your sin. Now we're talking Romans and Paul here. Jesus doesn't say this, okay? And, you know, unless someone's paid it, I can't forgive you. But don't worry, I'm going to pay it later on, you know, and that's how it works. He doesn't say this. And wouldn't you have thought he would say it at least once? if it is to be the assumed gospel, right? If it's to be this sort of bedrock. No, it's not what Jesus says. Jesus is announcing something else. And it's something I don't think we've really even got our heads around. And when challenged to summarize it by the teachers of the law who say, look, just sum it up for us. We don't get the four-step program. How does Jesus summarize it? Love God, love your neighbor. That's his preferred choice. Guys, the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand, he says over and over again. It's the first thing he says, I'm going to show you how it's at hand. I'm going to be with these people and show you this separation from God isn't there. I'm right here. I am God. God with you, right? Emmanuel. I'm with the sinners, right? I'm not going to separate myself or hurt you or harm you, even when you're hurting and harming me on the cross. Because that's what the love of God really looks like. And if you want to participate in this, if it is something that you want to take to heart, now we're saying, what is the gospel, I suppose, in a way that we can apply it. If it is something you want to, to run with, here's how you do it. You also be forgiving. Yeah? You also go and be compassionate to those on the margins. You also take up your cross, which is what that means. Not believing some uh, ethereal ideas, although that might be part of it. It's certainly not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is far more complex than that and also far more simple. It doesn't even need the four steps. It just needs the one. God loves you. Yeah? That's, that's almost essentially what Jesus says. God loves you and here's how it works out in practice. And here's how it can work out in practice in your life. Now, does that mean we ignore what other parts of the Bible say about the gospel? Of course not. But we must make them subservient to Jesus and take Jesus' word on it first, if indeed we consider ourselves Christians, as in Christ followers. It might be scary to go to this place because someone's told you, hic sunt draconis, there be dragons. Don't go there. Don't mess with that formula because we love it and we cherish it. Well, okay. I also understand that. I also grew up with it. But when you can see it's only 60 years old and that the rest of church history didn't summarize the gospel that way, surely there's at least a genuine opportunity to discuss it and to say, we might have got this wrong. And although those points might be there, perhaps they shouldn't be the actual bedrock from where everything else stems and become a gospel of sin management. The truth is, Jesus loves me, and this we know. Let's stand.